Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. Tired of your tentmate's flashlights shining in your eyes in camp? Bring an empty half-gallon milk jug or clear water bottle. Simply strap a headlamp around it, and it becomes a soft white lantern for everyone to see the light. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Write that down for me, Slater. Write that down for me, Slater. Hi, everyone. Hello from Burbank, California. Thank you for joining us. Once again, another episode of Write That Down on the Fight Game Media Network. My name is Justin Nipper. I work over at FightGameMedia.com, staff writer at F4W Online and WrestlingObserver.com. I work at Pro Wrestling Noah and CyberFight as well. And again, I am back with Japan's leading pro wrestling author and historian, broadcast journalist, sociologist, wonderful man, Mr. Fumi Saito. We're back with part two of Riki Dozan, the father of pro wrestling. This week we cover from 1958, Muthaz onwards to the end of his career. We covered his matches with Fred Blassie. We covered his matches with Destroyer. We talked about Masahiko Kimura some more. And we also debunked lots of wild conspiracies about his death. And there are quite a few. So I was happy to help clear that up with Fumi-san. Thank you for joining us once again. If you have not already, please subscribe to the Fight Game Media Network podcast feed on Spotify or Apple or wherever you usually listen to your podcasts. It helps us very much, so thank you very much. Hope you enjoy. We can do this on part two. So, picking up where we left off last week, we talked about the year 1958. We talked about the year that Ricky Dozan finally beat Luthez. Yeah, and 1958. In Los Angeles. At the Olympic, Olympic Auditorium. Auditorium. Yeah. So from, from there, let's talk about the rest of Ricky Dozan's career and how it kind of yeah. but, up uh, and out. This international heavyweight title is very important that uh, it really um, represents how he... Um, he created his Ricky Dozen legacy story that that uh, you would think if you beat Luthes for the world title, wouldn't you videotape it or film it? Sure. Because he had, you know, previously had like a world tour on, you know, the, the color film even that he went to Hawaii and that he's getting off a plane and all everything's filmed that he traveled to New York and, and bought a car like Chrysler and, and not quite Porsche yet but the American made big car and he's driving across the continent and everything is filmed you know what I'm saying and he had the nice so, suit on and he's waving to the fans and I, I think he even yeah to like visit a hero's Luthes. movie right yeah if you were scheduled to beat Luthes in, in a famous Olympic auditorium, you would think you'll film the entire match, right? Hmm. So he, Ricky Dose, in hindsight, he knew that it was going to be controversy. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And uh, in Japan, it was re reported that he beat Luthes for the world title. 
and the UPI and the AP and all these newswire, you know, all over uh, international newswire outside of wrestling that Ricky doesn't beat um, Luthes and, and, and all the sports pages beat, you know, reported that, that Ricky doesn't finally beat Luthes for the world title. Then UPI said it was non-title. It wasn't even main event. You know what I'm saying? It's very similar. It sounds just to me, it sounds like Fujinami and Ric Flair in the 90s. And Inoki against Bob Backlund in 79. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I think that was sort of, I don't want to say benefit. Came but that was, it was the time where you could really just, uh, promoters could make decisions and information yeah, and travel and, the and way and it mani- did. Manipulate the uh, you know, audience and manipulate the media and manipulate the outcome and the whole story as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, at the time, actually, Luthes, in, in, I'm talking about August of 1958, Luthes was not even National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight Champion. Mm-hmm. He, w- w- NWA champion at the time was Dick Hutton. Then this, you know, NWA World Title goes from Dick Hutton to Pat O'Connor, and pa- from Pat O'Connor to Buddy Rogers. It goes you know, from Buddy Rogers goes back to Luthes. But you have to wait to like a, you know, a couple of years. And it was a time that uh, Luthes actually was taking time off from this crazy NWA World Title traveling world champion schedules, right? And but at the same time, whenever. Luthes appeared and like making special appearance here and there, Arizona, that the New Mexico, Albuquerque, the uh, Los Angeles, or, or sometimes uh, Columbus, or, or, you know, Ohio, or Detroit. That that uh, Luthes was always built built as international champion, you know, like his nickname. Right. While he was not having NWA World Title, mm-hmm. so in a way, international heavyweight title existed but not quite sanctioned by NWA. Mm-hmm. Then again, it wasn't all that important in Japan that the beating Luthes in America and Ricky Dozan became champion. It's not far from the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the third, you know, as a, it's like a difference, you know, different kind of result in the third fall. See, at the time, um, all through 50s and early 60s into 70s maybe that the title match was two out of three fall match huh yeah that was the that was the norm all over yeah, the world yeah yeah and the third fall was dq finish mm. therefore technically probably if we, if it was even the title match title wouldn't change hand huh that's right and but it would also make sure that both guys came out of there not looking like too winner. weak <laughs> yeah like they kind of won they didn't lose yeah, right they didn't right. lose that's the idea and, the, and this is wrestling you know sure and yeah and uh, some results say that the Ricky Dozen beat Luthes with count out you know outside the ring and some results state that it was DQ and so some result in Japanese sports page simply said that uh, Rick Dozen beat uh, Luthes with his famous karate chop. Hmm. So it's confusing. And upon Rick Dozen's return, you know, to you know Haneda Airport, you know, all the reporters and newspapers and photographers all gathered and waiting for, you know, Rick Dozen to come out, right? Mm-hmm. And Rick Dawson, of course, have that uh, mini press conference right there at the airport, right? I beat Luthes for the world title. That's how I understand. 
I don't know about the UP. Somebody already fed the, uh, the, the information that the, some of the newswire said it was not even a title match. And uh, all in all, Ricky Dozen didn't win anything. But the Ricky Dozen insisted that I, I beat Luthes and became world champion. And, and, and do you have a belt? And, and he said, no, I don't have the physical belt because it's Luthes' belonging. Oh, okay. And uh, the fact is that I'm a champion, but I'm going to make my own championship belt, which he did, you know, later on, that the uh, international heavyweight, heavyweight championship belt that looked exactly like Luthes' belt. Mm -hmm. And also this international heavyweight title story came on wrestling magazines, like this International heavyweight title goes back to George Hake Schmidt, goes back to 1908 or something like that, you know. And uh, the second champion was Antonino Rocca in New York because he was an international superstar. And uh, uh, Luthes, as big as he was, had two sets of championship belts. The one is world, cha world heavyweight championship uh, sanctioned by National Wrestling Alliance, NWA. And the other was uh, awarded to him because he traveled the world. And he's an international champion. And that international championship was the one beat, Ricky Dawson beat for. Mm -hmm. Pretty good story, huh? But anyhow, that uh, uh, that the origin of the you know, title was such, but the, he started, Ricky Dawson started defending his, you know, very first, very important world title, like international, you know, well, that is to confuse people. Sometimes it was called World Heavyweight Champion. Sometimes it was called International Heavyweight Champion. And the world and international was pretty much one in the same. You know, in, mm. in, in the one, one paragraph, they used, you know, uh, in the newspaper article, in the one paragraph, they used both names. That was a world title. That was International Heavyweight title. And this, uh, people think it's one in the same. Anyhow, he started defending his international title and stayed in Japan for the reminder of his career. So International Heavyweight Championship became the most important title in Japan. But that's, you know, that's a fact. Does that make sense? Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, it's a title that served its purpose when it needed to. It's a, it's a title that was whenever you could kind of, and it was the time period where you could tell a story and that's all you needed was background also, for it. Also, Ricky Dozan didn't want that to be, you know, Japan heavyweight title or Asian heavyweight title or Pacific Coast heavyweight title or anything like that. It had to be, it had to be world title or it's called international championship. Mm -hmm. yeah. So for a native English speaker, the world champion and the international champion, which sounds better? About the same? <laughs> well, to a wrestling fan, I guess you'd have to say world just because we've all been trained to accept and trained and conditioned. the world is number one and international or intercontinental. That seems a step down for some reason. Although the main, oh, yeah. the main difference is that world is a noun and international is a, an adjective. It's a way to describe a noun. Right. Yeah. They mean it's the same idea, though. It's a, the internet. In the yeah, world. it's the same idea. And to make this argument even harder was that uh, we just talked about 1908, right? Mm. There was a two title match, 1908 and 1911. Both time, Frank Gotch of America against George Hakenschmidt of Russia. 
right? Uh, to unify an undisp you know, undisputed world heavyweight title, that it was called International Championship. <laughs> mm. Confusing, huh? But it sounds good, so. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, the, so international uh, heavyweight title became the 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 focal point of you know Japan Pro Wrestling Association and Ricky Dozen's all this ten year legacy, and and he defended his title against people like you know Ortega, you know that uh, Jesse Ortega, that Headstacks Calhoun, the Sunny Myers, the Pat O'Connor, the, uh, the Young Don Leo Jonathan, the, is all these superstars from America. And uh, yeah, he um, that the international heavyweight championship became that the that the main thing in, in you know in Japanese ring. And also he started World League, that's right, uh, spring annual tournament. You know, from like a ten superstars from America uh, every spring come in for like a eight week period and have this. You know, actually it wasn't even it's a tournament. But it was not a round robin. If it was a round robin tournament, Japanese against Japanese will happen, right? It didn't happen. It was always Japanese wrestler against American wrestler, and sometimes American against American. It was just like well, it didn't, didn't make perfect sense. But uh, during this eight, you know, six to eight week period, they go through this championship match and uh, compete in points, you know. And uh, the first annual uh, World League tournament in 1959, the following year. You know, um, people like uh, Lord James Blair's that uh, Mr. Atomic. Mr. Atomic is a you know very first mask guy who came to Japan. It's probably not a politically correct now, huh? Because Mr. Atomic in Japan, oh my gosh, mm, right? Yeah, post war period. Uh, yeah, a little on the nose, I guess you could say, but yeah, it's like a very close call. You know, wrestling that, featured that uh, sort of. Um, uh, vocabulary that we don't use these days because right, right. but uh, mr atomic instead became really popular because he looks like a like a tv character like mm. uh, gecko kamen that uh, you know you're a masked hero that the japanese tv loves so much mm -hmm. yeah so mr atomic jesse ortega and nikki torres from america uh, from uh, from california lord james players from england and uh, all these famous wrestlers came and competed in tournament and Ricky Dozen beat uh, Mighty Osos, Jesse Ortega for the final and became the first World League champion in 1959. So it's like tournament champion and international champion. Yeah. Yeah, you could really uh, believe he was the real deal. I guess that was the... the oh, it's a, he's been the real deal, but the more yeah. like, a, it's like a, when they started, you know, well, we have to re rewind the tape a little, little bit because, you know, for... Uh, for people who probably didn't listen to our, you know, part one episode, that uh, Ricky Dozen's wrestling started, you know, officially started. That uh, beginning of television was the beginning of wrestling, and beginning of wrestling was the beginning of television. And it was 1954 that uh, Ricky Dozen and King of Judo uh, Masahiko Kimura made a you know, special tag team when I went up against the famous Sharp brothers, Ben Sharp and Mike Sharp. And it was San Francisco's World Tag Team title, but it was just simply called World Tag Team title, you know, like a wrestling, you know, American style professional wrestling was introduced in Japanese market as a tag team, a tag team match. Wouldn't you think 101 would be bigger? 
you know, like in like a Japanese, you know, martial arts background, kendo, da, jujitsu, da, judo, da, karate, da. It's always one on one, right? Or even in boxing, there's no tag team match. But the wrestling was introduced as a tag team. Was there any reason behind that? Was there a specific reason behind that, or it was just because? Uh, of... I think Rick Dozan was a great producer and great wrestling mind that uh, he wanted to introduce professional wrestling as he studied in America. You know, that uh, in single match situation, there's going to be a winner and loser, huh? And he was so smart as a producer that he did not want to win that kind of, you know, like a initial world championship in his TV debut. It had to be the, the, the long drama chasing the world, right? Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and also tag team situation will introduce you what the professional wrestling is about. A tag in, tag out, or doing things behind referee's back. Or the not just the straight wrestling, but there's a showmanship in it, and uh, there's a little bit of laughter in it, and the, the heat in, in the wrestling term. Um, this like whole drama was introduced with tag team wrestling. Does that make sense? Yeah, you could introduce a lot of the elements of pro wrestling in one match you wouldn't have to do it over a series of singles matches over months or and years and also single match gets way too serious right away it sure. was like more like a post-war period that the you know japanese hero will go up against american uh like a not the hero but the billion you know mm-hmm. and well actually just our brothers are from canada not even american but uh, introduced as a big gaijin right and uh yeah and also, time situation, Ricky Dozan did not lose. It was always Masahiko Kimura who took mm. the fall. <laughs> so smart, right? Because it was within, uh, you know, like a people's mind, a former sumo wrestler star, Ricky Dozan, and king of judo, Masahiko Kimura, trying new thing, American-style professional wrestling. But in people's mind, Kimura, Kimura is a little bit more legitimate, you know? Because mm-hmm. for the 13-year period, he never once lost judo match. You know, Ricky Dozan was a sekiwake, not even Ozeki, not even Yokozuna. You know, he was a senior class, top, you know, top sumo star, but he wasn't quite grand champion star. You know, and uh, but it was Ricky Dozan's program. <laughs> you know, Ricky Dozan's a promoter. Ricky Dozan was a producer, and he really packaged this tag team. Uh, American-style professional wrestling real well with Sharp Brothers. Sharp Brothers tag team expert knew, just knew what they were doing. And they can be, you know, subtle heel. They can be a big, you know, follow the rule, babyface type wrestling. They were like the master of the craft. And, uh, well, Ricky Dawson actually met Sharp Brothers in, in San Francisco the previous year. And he knew that the, it took Sharp Brothers craft uh, to introduce American-style professional wrestling to Japanese TV, therefore Japanese market. And little did Kimura know, huh? <laughs> you know? Because mm. he actually, Kimura, you know, Masahiko Kimura, the, the, the judo master, became professional wrestler in Hawaii one year before Ricky Dozen, actually. Mm-hmm. A year before Ricky Dozen. And he went to Hawaii after this uh you know, that uh, failed the attempt of prof- professional judo in 1950. See, there was a group of Kodokan judo uh, people who wanted to 
become professional and run a, a, like a professional judo, international uh, judo association, like a pro wrestling, mm -hmm. and want to run the show for money. But the people weren't ready to have professional judo as your sport entertainment. And also, Ricky Dozan was a much bigger star, like star aura, you know, the way you, you know, carry yourself as a star. And all in all, Masahiko Kimura and his people, and uh, the one who uh, started professional judo, was his name was um, uh, Tatsukuma Ushijima, uh, eighth, eighth degree judoka, you know, black belt judoka, you know, post-war period, they wanted to make judo professional and ran the show, but really failed. And, and Kokichi Endo and, and, and the other judoka and, and Masahiko Kimura went to Hawaii to do the judo exhibition, ended up becoming professional wrestler. Like, he, that's not exactly what he wanted to do, but the promoter who invited Kimura and the other judoka was that they were wrestling promoters. They were going to make them pro wrestlers, you know? And Kimura was just didn't, I mean, he was always amateur in a way, don't you think? Yeah, well, judo, the way it was, I mean, yeah, it was, you're right, it was presented around the same time as pro wrestling. It, they they didn't develop with each other, but there was a period of time where they were kind of almost side by side, but not just in Japan, but places like Brazil, they were trying to do these uh, and, and also big shows. Yeah, and also he traveled, you know, to mainland states and Mexico, Go and sent, you know Central America and finally Brazil. It was 1955 that the Kimura had the famous fight against Elio Gracie, his right. grandpa Gracie. Yeah, and basically it's almost almost controversy too because he had this Kimura, you know, Kimura lock on, but the Elio never gave up. Somebody threw a towel in the family, Gracie family, and uh, Elio Gracie himself didn't really tap out. So it was like. Kimura beat him, but they didn't really defeat him, kind of thing. Yeah, there were also lots of issues with the Gracies and wanting specific kinds of, of rules that were not quite judo, right, right. their own jujitsu. Um, I don't think any of it, uh, it, it. What it did was it helped the sportsmen, it helped the people doing judo and jujitsu, but it didn't really appeal to fans. None of it did. Right. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And also for judo, it, judo did not become international sport until 1968 Olympic, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because it became Olympic official, uh, you know, sport that 
people started taking on judo you know in the whole world you know now it's an international olympic sport but the judo was staying in japan and pretty much within japan until like 1950s hmm. and kimura was product of the time of course he was a king of judo but uh, he wasn't making money other than being instructor and sensei right hmm. and uh that professional judo thing really didn't make it and he uh, he was invited by promoters in hawaii uh, to be an instructor judo instructor and also have judo exhibition in wrestling ring and ended up becoming professional wrestler almost without knowing it anyhow so the thing was kimura became professional wrestler one year before ricky dozen they learned professional wrestling in two different places Ricky Dozens met other people and became professional wrestler. And yeah, so it was like a, a former judoka and former sumo wrestler, both taking on a, this new introduction of American professional wrestling, like a new sport, post-war sport. And uh, it was, there was an argument, is that a sport or an entertainment? It always was there, that the issue was there. But anyhow, that the very first televised match uh, Ricky Dawson and Masahiko Kimura got together and made a tag team and uh, went, you know, went against Sharp Brothers. That was the beginning of the television and the beginning of wrestling. And uh, I guess Ricky Dawson pretty much outsmarted you know, Kimura. Huh? And uh, Kimura in situation in a tag team match, he was the one taking pinfalls. Then there was that year in December that uh, through the newspaper, Kimura challenged Ricky Dozan for a real fight. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a showman, and in the real fight situation, no way Ricky Dozan can beat me. Right, that's what <clears> he, he said. Yeah, that, that was the big. That was the line that kind of riled Ricky Dozan up. Yeah, but I think that the deal was already made when they announced it. Mm-hmm. It's wrestling, you know. Right. And it was going to be a big draw, you know, no conclusion. And 20 years after that match took place, you know, in 1983 or so, and Masahiko Kimura finally answered the magazine interview saying that uh, it was going to be a draw. And after that, that the Tokyo first match, we were going around the horn and we were going to travel around Japan, like uh, Osaka, the Nagoya, the Hiroshima, the all over country to have the same single match and we were going to make money. That never happened. It's like, wow, that's wrestling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But Very much. Uh, he was, Kimura himself was never a professional wrestler in mind. He was the, uh, the, the judo, judoka who happened to be doing some wrestling. How's that? You know, it, when you put it that way and you think about the the whole canon of current Japanese pro wrestling, there are, to me, there seem to be in Japan two general types of pro wrestlers and ones who are more wrestler-centric, who have a background. And in, grew in, up as a wrestling fan. Or... Fan, uh, wrestlers who like uh, Kimura, Akira Maeda, Naoya Ogawa, uh, even Satoru Sayama, and, and people incorporating real martial arts and embrace, or Shinya Hashimoto's to an extent, uh, embracing Budo. Was, was a big wrestling fan. He did, but he, he wasn't. Uh, when you think of him, you don't think of uh, Olympic uh, athlete or wrestler, you think of uh, Shinya Hashimoto. And I think there was definitely a, a 
there's a, a separation. There are two types of root wrestlers. There are wrestlers, wrestlers, and there are wrestlers who got their start in martial arts first. And I think we could see that split you early on. Break down into smaller group too. Because, of course, it's very general. Uh, it's very general. Uh, yeah, because smaller group within that is that Shinya Hashimoto was really wrestling fan. He never had problem doing professional wrestling with finishes. You know what I'm right. saying? Oh, right. So he, yeah, he, he's not somebody, you can't compare him to somebody like Akira Maeda who had a different philosophy on how things should should go. Hashimoto yeah, was a wrestler. Too, but more like an alien, like a space alien, like, you know, who just happened to wander into wrestling world, like, like Furumo Yokozuna Kitao mm-hmm. or Naoya mm-hmm. Ogawa. Sure. Because you know, they were never even wrestling fan, and he they didn't want to lose. You but you, and you sense that tension from them every time. Yeah, yeah. So it's like there was a trust issue there, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rest, if you're a professional wrestler and wrestler is wrestler, you trust your camaraderies. They all, you know, just you're a professional wrestler. You don't injure yourself. You don't injure others. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Mm. And for Kitao or uh, today's, you know, Naoya Ogawa probably, and uh, back then Kimura, I think winning and losing was everything because that's how they grew up. Mm. And they had problem with that, you know, that the Ricky doesn't going over or something. But anyhow, that uh, it was said it was going to be a draw. And uh, instead... The match took place in December. Uh, Ricky Dozen against Kimura, as history shows, that uh, Ricky Dozen basically beat him. You know, to the he, he beat the shit out of him. I mean, in in not a pro wrestling way, in a in a, in a barroom brawl kind of way. He, yeah, he, like a kick in the face and kick, stuff. Just a and, toe to the yeah, face. He was like carefully, you know, laid out too, because right before that. It, the video footage almost uh, justifies that that the, they were saying that the Kimura kicked Ricky Dozen in groin, and then Ricky Dozen got angry or something. That the story goes, you know what I'm saying? Mm. But that video footage really shows somewhat shows that right Kimura Kimura's kicking um, Ricky Dozen in the middle, and you know, and the, that seconds later Ricky Dozen his face changes and start, you know, giving this, you know, karate thrust and a big, you know, like a palm thrust into the face. And uh, I, I think... And I think there was Kimura, just a straight we, fist to the face too from... from yeah, after that, yeah. And, Closed and fist. With this Kimura's background, he just sensed that right away. It's like something's definitely wrong, right? So mm-hmm. he just, I think he decided to lay there too. Because if you get knocked out, you go backward and, uh, you know, the, the face up, right? Mm. But this time, Kimura's face was down. He's like, no, I ain't doing this anymore. You know what I'm saying? He, there was so, one shot that drops him. Uh, whether it was uh, worked or not, I don't know. But it, it was a shot. I, may, I, I know what you mean. I thought the same. Maybe he was just playing dead. So Riki Dozon would stop. But... Yeah, but his face was actually swollen up too. So... Mm that the uh, contact was made mm-hmm. yeah so this is like a, that's like 60 year mystery that the, we can spend all night <laughs> talking about right this. yeah but it was what happened and uh, 
with this one match, Ricky Do that made Ricky Dozen the king of this professional wrestling industry. And after that, Kimura didn't really spend much time with wrestling. Although he ran some of his own shows, though, with Mexican, you know, masked wrestlers, you know. Then he went to uh, Europe and went to Mexico and he did some wrestling for money, you know. But eventually, Kimura came back to Japan and went back to uh, Takushoku University and became a um, judo coach. And that, that's what he did the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. He only wrestled, what, a total of four years, three years, four years. But the Ricky Dozen's legacy just gone right there you know what i'm saying mm. yeah but anyhow that uh, we, we know fast forward a little bit uh 1950 summer of 1958 in los angeles without filming it they're just still photos that uh as evident uh uh ricky dawson beat luthes for the international title and the international title in japan was created and he stayed in japan it's still part of all japan's triple crown seven mm -hmm. years later yeah and following year, 1959, the World League uh, tournament starts. <clears throat> 59, 60, 61, 63, uh, 62, 63. So five-year period. That was the main thing until his death. Spring tournament. This spring tournament tradition remains uh, with all Japan's, today's all Japan, or Jan Baba's all Japan's champion carnival. And Anthony Inoki's New Japan Pro Wrestling first five years at the Madison Square Garden series, all kinds of New York superstar from WWF, uh, you know, Matt, you know that the partnership with Vince McMahon Senior, that uh, New Japan had Madison Square Garden series for for spring tournament, and it became IWGP tournament before IWGP became heavyweight title to be defended. That it was spring tournament thing. Then in December you have tradition of tag team tournament thing, right? Yeah, so that the calendar year was created back then. And I mean, you could even trace it back today to something like the G1 or again, the All Japan this, tournament. Yeah, yeah. All Japan's version of Champion Carnival, and N1 or women's have it with, with Stardom's uh, Grand Prix. Um, Grand, yeah, right. That's, that's a Five-star Grand Prix tournament. Yeah. It's the template. It's, it's, the, it's the foundation for how Japanese yeah, wrestling is usually scheduled for this four five year you know five week six year six weeks period that uh, everybody have single match with one another it's very interesting right mm -hmm. like a dream match uh, feeling yeah yeah so 59 he beat Jesse Ortega to win the, in the championship following year he beat Leon Amelini for, for you know for the final uh, which is good because uh Leon you know, like a former 49ers football player. Mm, big guy. Leon Amelini, yeah. Leon he was the one, Ricky Do one of the wrestlers Ricky Dozen lost during his stay in America. You know, between uh, 53 to 54, one year period, Ricky Dozen spent one whole year in America learning business, right? To be a promoter, to be a superstar, to be a, a TV producer, in a whole bit. That the three wrestlers, he, reportedly, he lost, you know, was uh, Leon Amelini and uh, Red Scorpion Tom, Tom Rice and Fred Atkins, three wrestlers. So there was a revenge time that the 1960s World League Tournament final, Ricky Dozen finally beat this big football superstar, Leon Amelini. Mm. Interesting, huh? Mm. And the third annual was a 63, where they had uh, Carl Krauser 
that the later on called Gotch, right? And Great Antonio, uh, probably Great Antonio. When you talk about Great Antonio, uh, <laughs> decades later, Inoki beat the shit out of it, right? It's kind of famous story. Yeah, yeah. But that original, uh, the Great Antonio's original tour was 1961, the third annual World League tournament. And also that the final of the tournament was Ricky Dozan against Mr. X, that uh, big, you know, uh, gynecologist, uh, black mask guy. Uh, the inside was uh, Dr. Bill Miller and big superstar from AWA. Anyhow, that the Ricky Dozan beat Mr. X, the big black man, you know, that the dark mask guy, you know, uh, for the final. And uh, Coral Gotch's German suplex was introduced that year. <clears throat> And young 18, 19 year old, you know, Inoki in ringside being a ring boy, that the witnessing <clears throat> that Carl got the German suplex. Yeah. So that the little bit of history there. Hmm. And actually, this 19 year old uh, Antonio Inoki participated in, in the World League tournament, too, the f- fourth annual, uh, fourth annual in 1962. Uh, it was Lou in it. Um, Freddie Blassie in it, Great Togo in it, um, there's all kinds of uh, other superstars. The tournament final was once again uh, Ricky Dozan against Luthes. Not the title match, but the tournament final. Ricky Dozan beat Luthes in 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 count out, you know, finish, and that was the last time Ricky Dozan and Luthes ever met. Hmm. Fourth annual. Then fifth annual, 1963, was Ricky Dozan against Killer Kowalski final. And uh, he was going to, Ricky Dozan was saying that uh, um, they were all going to do this World League tournament in five years. This is it. This was my final. And actually, it became his final. He won uh, fifth annual World League tournament in 1963, spring of 1963, and he died that year. <clears throat> Interesting, huh? Mm. So it came pretty, I guess you could say abruptly. Well, of course, abruptly, but also at a high point in his wrestling career. Um, I I imagine if Yuki Dozan had been alive, he'd have been a big star for the next at least 10, 15 more years, right? Probably, but he was already, you know, that the hinting that he is retiring soon. See, hmm. in 1963, Ricky Dozan was already like an 11 year veteran mm-hmm. on top for 10 years. And uh, another thing, you know, you and I talked about that the, in 1961, he built the Ricky Sports Palace in Shibuya, in a 9th Street, big, huge building, round building that the, he designed after um, that the Honolulu Civic Center, like a round dome-shaped building with nine stories building with, you know, the, the sports gym, the wrestling gym, the boxing gym, that the restaurant, nightclub, sauna, and bowling alley in one building. And Ricky's Sports Palace was built in 1961. It was going to be, it did become the, the home of pro wrestling and his, his dream palace. Ricky's Sports Palace was built in 1961. You know, in 1961's money, he spent millions on it, and it was going to be a center of pro wrestling and also dojo. And there was a nightclub and restaurant and sauna and, you know, 
a bowling alley of all things. He saw these, you know, multi-purpose building in America and wanted to make something like that. Do you think that in today's world, it's kind of the equivalent would be maybe Tokyo Dome City or something like that with the bowling yeah. and all the video games and rides and restaurants? And sauna, spa, mm. yeah. And, uh, but uh, there was a restaurant and nightclubs in there and uh, a membership, you know, sports gym. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, everything. And six, and six floor, seventh floor, eighth floor was like a – uh, round shape wrestling arena that holds 3,000 people. It's much like Korakuen Hall size, I guess, but mm. uh, that was Rick, Ricky, Sp- uh, Ricky Dozen's dream. And the following year, oh, around the same time, he, Ricky Dozen, built Ricky Apartment in Akasaka, Tokyo, like your very, like you're talking 1960, right? But like today's condominium style, you know, apartment with swimming pool in it. He himself lived there, but uh, he built Ricky apartment. That that was his thing, and also uh, um, he started Ricky Cafe, that you know, like a modern American style restaurant. Yeah, and uh, the following year he announced that the new company that he's you know that the opening for the it's called Lakeside Country Club, big huge golf course. Oh, where was that? Was that in Tokyo or is that outside of Tokyo? No, no, no. Like uh, some, some outside Tokyo. Yeah, the, he bought Shiba or something. Uh, Osagami or something, somewhere. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, he was going to build this Lakeside Country Club, the membership golf club. I was just building things and things, you know, like going to that direction. Real entrepreneur. Know. Yeah, the Ricky Dozen's ambition. Yeah, shows it. Yeah, yeah. So he was, of course, he is need to be a wrestling superstar, though. But uh, see, from you know, Ricky Dose and Kimura Sharp Brothers thing, introduction of wrestling, beginning of wrestling, beginning of television, beginning of television, beginning of wrestling, beat Kimura to be the king of you know of the industry, and beat King Kong for Asian title, and beat Tom Rice for Pacific title, and following year finally he beat Luthes. It wasn't NWA world title, but uh, he brought that title as a title, uh, came home as an international champion, and who, who never sanctioned at the time. But uh, it became your centerpiece, <clears throat> international heavyweight title in Japan that stayed in Japan. Then the World League for the five-year period. So he, I think this 10-year period, he'd done it all as a wrestler and mm. wrestling promoter. Yeah. And he was expanding himself to this lakeside country club golf course, the Ricky Sports Palace, the Ricky Apartment, the Ricky Cafe. The, uh, yeah, so I think he was really moving towards that direction around that time, mm. early 60s. When was it that he had his match with uh, Destroyer? Was it in the. Uh, okay, I'll get to it. Um, this was uh, another international. Uh, like a big, huge, like a, nah, I was going to say storyline, but now storyline, but the, the very big program, it was 1962, okay? 1962, March in LA, uh, March 28th to be exact, Los Angeles Olympic Auditorium, he beat Freddie Blassie to become WWA World Heavyweight Champion, Worldwide Wrestling Associates, you know, 
LA-based, another big organization. You know, it was spin-off of Luthes's belt, actually. You know, again, mm-hmm. you know, starting from like 1957 in Chicago, Edouard Carpentier uh, beat, you know, forfeit you know, Luthes for NWA title. Then Edouard Carpentier started defending NWA world title all over the company, whereas some some parts of the country titles held up and Luthes still defending his title elsewhere and up in Montreal that uh, Luthes and Edward Car- Carpentier meet again to unify the title in the meantime there's in the Boston uh, the killer Kowalski beats Edward Carpentier and Boston recognized new company killer Kowalski as a world champion and other places you know this is like a, a world champion claimant you know, mm. like few people in, in what's well, like America in, in wrestling markets too big that the, you, you can have more than one champion, right? Mm. Around the same time, 1960, Pat O'Connor supposedly wouldn't, you know, defend his NWA world title against Vern Gagne. Therefore, Vern Gagne goes ahead and creates his American Wrestling Association, AWA, and becomes his own world champion. And Edward Carpentier came to LA as a person who beat Luthes. Then Freddie Blassie beat Edward Carpentier to become WWE world champion. That's what I'm getting. And uh, Ricky Dawson beats Freddie Blassie to become WWE world champion in March 28th of 1962. And following month, in April 23rd in Tokyo, both you know Freddie Blassie and Ricky Dawson come back from LA and has Ricky Dawson's very first title defense, okay? Then the Ricky Dawson beat Freddie Blassie again, world champion, world champion. Then July of that year, uh, July 26, uh, 1962, it goes back to LA and champion Ricky Dawson against uh, challenger uh, Freddie Blassie that uh, Ricky Dawson was, got so bloody in and the referee stopped the match and awarded the title back to Freddie Blassie. How's that? That was Pretty- a big program. Yeah, I mean, those last couple of years, those were big, yeah, like you said, big programs. And Ricky Dozon was even more, um, becoming even more well-known in the States. Yeah, but what was interesting is, though, that uh, I saw the program from L.A. that night, you know, mm-hmm. saying it was the match of century. WWE World Champion Ricky Dozon against N.A. WA, whatever, world champion, Freddie Blassie. Both were billed as world champion that night. Hmm. Like unifying world title. Not Freddie Blassie being challenger or anything like that. But oh. in Japan, it was reported champion Ricky Dozen against ch- challenger Freddie Blassie. That's it. Yeah. It's confusing. And, oh, very confusing. And also, this, uh, see, Ricky Dozen against Freddie Blassie, 1962, March, April, July, this, you know, three-city, uh, L.A., Tokyo, back to L.A., this th- three-big title match, right? It's a big program, huh? Mm-hmm. During that time period, this Ricky Dozen's own international heavyweight title was ignored. Sort of like a... Ricky Dozen didn't really defend his international heavyweight title once that year. It just, you're supposed to forget about it or something, you know? 
sure. or make, make people confused. The real world title was in LA, and uh, Freddie Blassie and Ricky Dozen had a first match in LA. Back to Tokyo, Ricky Dozen defended the title successfully, then bring the title back to LA and in July, and he uh, referee stopped the match mysteriously that the Ricky Dozen was bloody and that uh, gave the title, you know, championship belt back to Freddie Blassie, and Ricky Dozen all angry and came home. <laughs> How's that? You know what I mean? Pretty dramatic but, at the end, yeah. Yeah. Then, um, the s- s- same year, Ricky Dozen starts defending his international title domestically again. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yeah. So, for one year period, when they were playing with WWE World Title from LA, they treated that as an undisputed world championship, right? And uh, Didn't Ricky Dozen was- end up buying that belt? Uh, a physical belt. Mm. I don't know because there's like a photos of you know, this you know Dick by a destroyer wearing a Luthes looking belt, and there's a, like a lots of publicity photo that the Freddie Blassie wearing Luthes belt, and this Rick Dozen was always wearing this Luthes looking belt in Japan too. So there must be more than one physical belt mm. of that design. It must be, yeah. And they always treated that as international heavyweight title too. Then when you know Jan Baba opened the All Japan Pro Wrestling in 1972, that the Momota family came out and gave that belt to Baba. Therefore, that became very first PWF belt. You know. Mm. And then then they they changed the design, but uh, it looks like Rick Dozen's old belt was just you know metal gold belt like Luthes design. And uh, I believe there are more than one physical uh, Luthes belt. Like, mm. yeah. And later on, if you remember uh, UWFI Takada from 1996, he was wearing a belt too. That's right. And Luthes was there to present it. Right, right. So that uh, that design, Luthes belt itself, meant something like a brand. I see. Yeah. Yeah, but that's another subject for another day. So 1962, Ricky Dozen, Freddie Blassie program was really big. You know, LA, Tokyo, LA, really international flavor, right? Mm-hmm. And Ricky Dozen winning the belt, but losing it, not really losing it. I mean, losing it by not being defeated. How's that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And there's... um. Ricky Dozen's very last famous program against Dick Byer Destroyer. That was actually the best program Ricky Dozen had, and sadly that that was his last program. Yeah. That was 1963, following year, and his final year. Aside from, you know, World League, um, it was right after fifth annual World League tournament final, Ricky Dozen beating Kirill Kowalski, for the championship, the the Dick Buyer destroyer, the intelligent, sensational destroyer, right? Mm. With white mask. He and suit and tie underneath. The, he comes into ring and challenges Ricky Dozen the final night of the, the, the World League tournament. Then there was like a one week tour that the that the destroyer comes in as WWA, Los Angeles, of course, WWA world champion and defending his title against challenger Ricky Dozan that year. What was funny was, though, now you have the record from the States, right? Mm-hmm. As of, okay, um, it was um, March, I mean, uh, May, it was May of 1963. 
the first meeting of uh, between Ricky Dozen and Dick Byer, uh, the destroyer was May 19th of 1963 in Osaka, Nantairo, okay, and destroyer beat him, okay, the first meeting. Then May uh, 24th in Tokyo is like uh, another title. Uh, that was a WWE title match, champion destroyer against challenger Ricky Dozen, and it was a draw, okay? Therefore, Ricky Dozen couldn't win the title. But the record shows now that the uh, destroyer didn't even, didn't, didn't even have the title that day. He dropped the title to uh, some, yeah, uh, I forgot it was uh, either Freddie Blassie or, or uh, Bob Ellis or somebody, or, you know, there was another champion in L.A. that week. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that mm. weird? News traveled very slowly that, you know, around the time period in 1963. Uh, Dick Byer Destroyer came to Japan built as the you know, current WWE champion. But in L.A., there was another champion defending the title that week. Mm. Yeah. That was Anyhow, kind of the the, the, the there was a, the norm or the just the way you did business. Wrestling business was yeah, and it was also yeah. based on how technology was at the time too, and how we communicated. Yeah, it was like decades we, before the internet, of course. A lot of it uh, we got. Uh, there was TV at the moment, but before that, I mean, it was mostly press. It was mostly print. It was. Yeah, and the way newswire. we got yeah newswire. So we're getting the stories in a different way. It's it's completely different. So it's it's yeah. nice to Anyhow, study. As a, as a champion, Destroyer defended title against Rick Dozen, and it was you know two out of three four match and uh, sixty minute you know Broadway and uh, the first meeting you know in the May of nineteen sixty three they had two matches. One win by Destroyer and one draw. So Ricky Dozen didn't win either, okay? Then six months later, in December of the same year, 1963, Destroyer came back. It was really rare that the same wrestler traveled to Japan twice in one year. Mm -hmm. Destroyer was the only one. They brought Destroyer, it was so popular right away, that they brought Destroyer back in December of that same year, and they had, the in, this time, champion Ricky Dozen, international heavyweight champion, Destroyer was a challenger, and the, the, the first meeting, December 24th, Christmas Eve, uh, no, December 2nd or something, that uh, Ricky Dozen beat uh, Destroyer for the first time. Now it's 1-1-1 one, one, one draw, right? Then two days later in Osaka, Texas Death Match was brought, you know, they introduced the no, you know, no pinfall or just you do it until you can't continue anymore. And there was a draw uh, December 4th in Osaka. And so they had four single matches. Ricky Dawson in, in the Destroyer had four single matches in one year, one win, one lose. One, one, two, two draw. So it's like a, a, for Destroyer or for Ricky Dozen. One win, one lose, two draw in four matches. So it was like a to be continued if they didn't, you know, if Ricky Dozen didn't pass. And the same week, I guess, um, December 7th, three days later, the final night of this Destroyer Series tour, um, six man tag team. Ricky Dozen, Michiaki Yoshimura, and Great Togo 
against Destroyer and Killer Buddy Austin and Idio De Paolo. Uh, Six-man tag team. It happened in, 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 in Hamamatsu. And uh, that was the very last night Ricky Dawson ever wrestled. Hmm. Well, Destroyer was his last opponent. Oh. Of his life, of Ricky Dawson's life. You know, I heard a story that Destroyer was supposed to be with Ricky Dawson on the night he was. At the nightclub? Yeah, but he, he didn't I go. I think that, he, that day he had lunch, you know. Something like that, Big yeah. Fire, yeah. Big Fire had lunch. Uh, that he, there was a the plan that the that the sumo, you know, not the professional wrestling, but this sumo 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 association was going to have a U.S. tour following year, mm-hmm. and Dick Byer Destroyer was going to be the representative in the states, and sumo people and Ricky Dozen and Dick Byer had lunch together that day, like hours before his stabbing incident. Mm-hmm. So Ricky, I mean, Dick Byer stayed a little longer that day. He could have gone to the Latin Quarter that the where the incident happened. Mm. Yeah, but that shows to you that uh, Dick Byer and Ricky Dawson became good friends. That's right. Yeah, he made a lot and of money. Also, and yeah, and also Dick Byer really started having feeling about like Japan, like you know the place he wants to be. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he could have been in that nightclub, New Latin Quarter in Akasaka, where stabbing incident really happened that night later on. Yeah, that's all all ifs, you know. A lot of yeah. There's there's so much mystery around uh, Ricky Dozan's death. Oh, so much, so much mystery. And this the night of December eighth at the Akasaka nightclub, New Latin Quarter, he was stabbed. Uh, by his name is Murata, but I, that's not important. But the, he was stabbed in ba- that the bathroom fight. Who stepped the toe? Or, no, I didn't step your toe, and I st- you stepped my toe, and this, this is a push and shove. And this, he, I, from all come, Ricky Dozen beat him up in the bathroom, mm-hmm. right? And that this little yakuza guy, that the low class mafia guy. And felt danger of his life, I guess. And he had a little knife, 13 centimeter knife. That's like, uh, what would that be? Four inch knife? 13 centimeters. Sorry, my American brain has to um, <laughs> uh, do some calculations. Five inch, probably? Yeah, like about five Not inches. Not that big of a knife. A little bit more. Yeah, yeah five inches. Yeah. yeah. From his pocket. Who would have knife in his suit pocket, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. But he stabbed Ricky Dozen. Then he ran, okay? Ricky Dozen stood up and came back to the table where he was drinking and kept drinking. And he went up to stage, Ricky Dozen himself went up to stage where live bands were playing and grabbed the house mic and said, there's a gang in this house. Please be careful, people. Uh, I I got stabbed, (laughs) right? And he went back to the table where he was drinking with his friends, entourage, that he kept drinking. Then his friend looked at his you know, side, like a stomach. Like, Sir, you're bleeding. You know, we got to call ambulance. He said, no, don't, don't, whatever you do, don't call ambulance or, or people will know, right? And the Ricky Dozan wouldn't be stabbed, you know. Then he kept drinking a little more. Then uh, it was, Sir, you're bleeding. I'll take you home. Then he went home that night 
like 11 o'clock at night, then call the ambulance, then had a stitch, you know. Then that uh, had an infection a little bit, he went back to hospital the next day again, then, then he was in hospital the rem you know, reminder of time. He wouldn't die until the week later, though. The stabbing incident happened in December 8th. He died of 15th of December. So he, he was in hospital for one whole week. As mm -hmm. a record. Yeah. Because there's a story, you know, you and I talked about that, you know, somebody's, you know, um, the podcast that, oh, a lot of the famous story was that he was stabbed by urinated knife and he was poisoned, right? Yeah, and he died of not, an infection or something. Not true. Yeah. And also, there's a crazy story in some podcasts that uh, Ricky Dozen had a had a two million dollar in cash cash in U.S. currency, and and he, in his briefcase he handcuffed himself with his briefcase. Mafia guy followed him in 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 bathroom and and stabbed and killed him and uh, cut his wrist off and stole the money. That's the craziest story. Mm. That never happened. That's like a straight out of a Quentin Tarantino movie, or or <laughs> that was my favorite. That's my favorite. That he got his hand cut off for two. Who carries two million dollars around with him in a briefcase in the sixties? And the handcuff himself in the briefcase. I mean, crazy story. Vicky was a big superstar. Why would he do that? You know, why would he have? No, he, he could easily none have. Of, none of that. None of that is true. Yeah, he I was mean, just good time at nightclub with his friends that night. That the, the the entire schedule, you know, match schedule and all the event schedule is done. The previous night was six man tag team with like the Bayer and Buddy Austin, Leo De Palo. He took train home and had a meeting with small people. And you know, he was gonna go into you know, of all things, he was gonna help small association uh, to go to America and have a tour. And his new friend Dick Bayer was gonna help. Sumo Association in, in the LA side and had a great meeting. Then moved to, uh, he, you know, he, he and his friend went to Latin New Latin Quarter nightclub, famous nightclub, and was having a great time. Then there was a bar fight, of course. Then there was a sort of like not really like, um, um, what's the word? Uh, the stabbing itself wasn't all that crucial at the time right it, you know when we say stab when you say stabbing you imagine some, like the movie psycho with somebody with a butcher knife in their hand and, and they're stab stab stabbing over and over where this sounds like from the story that you told a scuffle but it's that, well documented no 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 you know the, what i'm saying is that, that it's a, a scuffle that uh this person that stabbed Ricky dozan i think you know had a blade on him and he he might have got i don't know if he got stabbed quite intentionally or there was a kind of a poke and he might have severed something and it wasn't uh, he wasn't supposed to stab him in the right you know you know what i mean it wasn't an yeah, intentional yeah, yeah. murder bar fight you know yeah it was more of a bar fight and less of a like a planned murder for money or something yeah. and also ricky doza knew that person too actually uh there was like a three years back in 1960 he tried to stab uh, Ricky Walder or somebody that the uh, African wrestler in nightclub. I mean, mm -hmm. wrestling fan, of course. Yeah, obviously, you know, the 22-year-old wrestling fan got got in a fight with Ricky Walder and King Curtis Alkea, and uh, he was going to stab Ricky Walder too. So he, he's this crazy fan was his name was known. So Ricky Dozen apparently recognized him in the bathroom, of course. Hmm. Yeah, 
And there was like, a, you stop, you know, step my toe, and you know, you step my toe, and this is like a little incident. And uh, there was a bar fight, but there is not a videotaped or you know, eyewitness on that, you know. But the, the guy stabbed him and ran. And Rick Dozan walked, got up and walked. <clears throat> and came back to the table where he was drinking. He sat again and had more drinks. I said, nah, it's nothing, right? And uh, so it, it wasn't all that, like, a really crucial, you know, that, like, not like you'd be dead there. You know what I'm saying? Sure. He was, and he was a real tough guy about it. He didn't feel like it was a big deal. He got into a little scuffle. Yeah, there's some blood, but I'm going to have a good time. It's kind of... And two sets of uh, uh, two sets of you know that the ma mafia yakuza family came to Rikitozan's home to apologize that night, and there was an incident that this the actual person who got who stabbed him got real beaten up bad outside of the you know Rikitozan's apartment and stuff, and uh, there's like a, the dark side of that story too you know, mm -hmm. and uh, all in all that he had a surgery you know, in a major operation you know the following day he was doing well. And the fifth day, uh, yeah, it was like the newspaper reported that he'll be back in two months. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like he was going to die there. Yeah, and, it sounds uh, like it was a shock, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of stories that uh, he, you know, that uh, he started drinking water when, while he wasn't supposed to or had somebody go get get a you know bottle of seven up or coca-cola or something that he always wanted to drink and there's uh the time that the, when, he, when he was wasn't supposed to eat yet he was eating or there's like a lot of stories that you just can't really prove right now you know? yeah there's uh, i i think you might have told me the story about he might have been overeating right after he had gotten injured stabbed, yeah, got stabbed yeah, and it affected yeah, his stomach part of the, yeah intestine yeah yeah and also uh there's a you know the book written about that the doctor made medical mistake you know yeah and uh yeah stuff like that mm -hmm. it's mysterious things that happened 59 years ago now that's it's really really like a bunch of pieces of puzzle that we still have to put together and we still don't know the the, the whole whole truth yet you know right a very controversial seems a little bit conspiratorial but it seems as years go on the truth comes but out it wasn't more. planned murder by right. mafia or anything like that it was yeah right. it wasn't a hit by the hitman oh, no, on, yeah no, no it's not it's as dramatic right right then he didn't want to die then yeah, just announced the Lakeside Country Club thing and the Ricky apartment and Ricky Restaurant Cafe and and, uh, and the whole bit. And uh, Ricky Palace was still there. That the Ricky Dozen's Ricky Palace Wrestling Building was actually sold, you know, to third party only three years after Ricky Dozen passing. Oh, you know, that uh, all that that the entrepreneur dream didn't really, you know, come true, you know that the, all those things pretty much disappeared with Ricky Dozen, uh, big, huge superstar Ricky Dozen disappearing from public. Yeah. So that was 1963. Because he wanted to be part of this, you know, 1964 Olympic, Tokyo Olympic. Mm -hmm. He donated 10 million yen in 1961. 
you know, to, you know, for JOC, you know, Japan Olympic Committee and IOC, International Olympic Committee. He even visited Rome Olympic in 1960. He wanted to be involved in, in, in the Olympic Committee. In, 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 it symbolized that Japan's, come, you know, comeback and becoming a big, you know, big economy and, in, in, in you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The post-war era is over with. Japan's on its move to be, you know, to become good big company and country again, kind of thing. And it really was a, Ricky Dozan really was a hero in that uh, era. Right, he was the symbol. Yeah, of like a Japan making comeback kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, the, the return to the stage. Yeah, yeah. What was interesting? What was interesting that that the fact he was from Korean Peninsula. Uh, for real, right? It was pretty well hidden that time period, you know, for the 10 year Ricky Dawson superstar legacy. It was never talked about. That's why it was more secretive, you know, more so than he wanted it to. Mm -hmm. He had to be Japanese hero, huh? Yeah, because if he went the other way, it would have been a totally different story, wouldn't it? Yeah, but he did visit Korea in 1962 and it wasn't even publicized. Yeah. He, uh, he he went to South Korea that time in 1962, and uh, met with a lot of famous, you know, like an important politician. That the day, really, you know, Korean people really, you know, thought that uh, Rick Dozan was is one of them, and uh, he was going to have a show in you know South Korea if he lived longer, you know. Yeah. So a lot of things that that it was planned that never took place. So we don't know about it, you know. Mm. And, uh, the December of 1963, yeah, he died 59 years ago. And today's, as we're talking, it's December 22nd, right? That was the day Ricky Dawson had a famous, famous single match against Masahiko Kimura, too. It was nice timing. Yeah, yeah. In episode one, that was the night. December 15th was Ricky Dawson's Memorial Day. Yeah, a lot of people went to his gravesite that day. Yeah, 59 years later. There's a big statue of Rick Dozen. In, in, well, next time you're in Japan, let's go there together. Yeah, I think it's a definite <clears throat> destination. It's in Tokyo. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Big bust of his upper body. It's out in uh, East yeah, Tokyo, with, I think, Nippori or something. With this new champion belt, too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So uh, it's very interesting. And also... Um, uh, Dick, Dick Bayer, the, the destroyer, you know, became the institution in Japan too. Yeah, that's right. Ten, yeah, ten, ten years. Yeah, ten years later in 1973, and he stayed in you know, lived in Japan with his family for a seven-year period, full time. And his kids, all his kids, uh, went to school and graduated from school, you know, Japanese school, you know, in Japan. And, Fluent uh, Japanese speakers and yeah. He still does business in Japan, and Dick Bayer, the destroyer, was the very first person, American superstar wrestler, who signed full-time deal with Japanese company, with Jan Barber. Yeah. He also is one of the first wrestlers, I don't know if he was influenced by Riki Dozan because of this, but he also would open up his own golf course later on in his career. I guess, in Buffalo, New York. Oh, mm -hmm. Wow. 
Yeah. I never thought of that. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I mean, maybe he was an avid golfer from before. I know Destroyer was a really uh, athletic, very sports-centric yeah, personality. College, college gym teacher. Player. Yeah, gym teacher. And even after retiring in, in 1993, that he kept, you know, coming back to Japan every summer with, you know, kids wrestling. Um, when there there was a big earthquake in, up in up north. She came, you know, came to volunteer, you know, you know, did the volunteer work and uh, all these things. And uh, he was always part of the, you know, he was an institution, let's say, yeah, put it that way. Yeah, and he'd be on television, show, like non-wrestling television shows and commercials. Yeah, in, yeah, in mid-70s, yeah, he was in uh, Uasano Channel uh, television. It's kind of like your Saturday Night Live type show, mm -hmm. like a studio, you know, sitcoms. And he was in commercial, of course. And this Christmas time, he had a Christmas album too. That's right. Singing. Yeah, they got the got vinyl. Album. Just singing Japanese uh, holiday songs too. Yeah, yeah, he was, and also he didn't age because of the mask. The mask. That's yeah. right. He was always <gasps> the destroyer. Yeah. Oh, he was wearing mask outside wrestling ring too. You know, wherever he went, he had that mask on. Hmm. Yeah. So it's like, and see, Ricky Dozen's last big rival became Giant Baba's best friend. This is this great story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess before we wrap up, I mean, his legacy, Ricky Dozen, his legacy, um, it extends farther than a lot of wrestlers. I mean, most wrestlers from Japan, but wrestlers all over the world. Yeah. So there's a lot of ifs that, that if Ricky Dozen lived longer, what would Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki would do? Hmm. Are they going to be New Japan Pro Wrestling? Are they going to be All Japan Pro Wrestling and every single spin-off from it? Yeah. Now we have, what, the over 100 wrestling group, you know, companies out of Tokyo. It was going to be like that if Rick doesn't live. Maybe he had this, I don't know, the, the real association of wrestling companies, maybe. and uh, Or he would go on and become politician in Japan. Hmm. Much like Antonio Inoki did later on. Or be the um, ambassador for North Korea and South Korea, you know? You know, uh, his, uh, <clears throat> I, how much, his, a lot of his family, they still live in Korea or are they living in Japan these days or? Um, there's another mysterious part that the, he had kid, a, uh, the, uh, the daughter in Korea too. Mm -hmm. And he, apparently he married in Japan about three times. I see. And yeah, two sons, two daughters, older daughter and younger daughter. And actually, in 1963, he married to uh, Keiko Tanaka, the, the 21 year old, the, the JAL, uh, the, the spokesperson. Yeah. And when Rick Dozen passed, she was pregnant. So that the girl, uh, her name is Hiromi, she was born. After Rick Dozen died, uh, that's also Rick Dozen's Rick Dozen's daughter. So there's like a one, two, three, four. At least five known children of Rick Dozen. Mm -hmm. One in in North Korea, apparently, and the, and the, the Yoshihiro and and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, now you know Rick Dozen's granddaughter and everything. But uh, yes, that fi family, you know, that uh, tree is very complicated too with him. Mm -hmm. But, Everything uh, is pretty serious, he, huh? he did have uh, 
two sons that would continue on into the wrestling business. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the Momota. Yeah, Momota brothers. brothers. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I think is Mitsu Momota still active as a wrestler? Yeah, and his son Achikara. Uh, yes. Ah. Yes, Mitsu. Yeah, and pro wrestling Noah he started with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and 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 the Mitsuo Momota, uh, young youngest of Rikidozan's son, he's about seventy something, but he's not retired. He occasionally wrestles. Yoshihiro, uh, uh, the the older brother of, of uh, Mitsuo, Yoshihiro uh, died two thousand one, probably. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was part of Pro Wrestling Noah, mm. and he was a announcer and a wrestler, <laughs> ring announcer with All Japan and also wrestler. With all Japan progressing, yes. Mm. And like you just said earlier, um, I work with his daughter, um, Remy-san. Yeah. She, she's also been with Noah for, I think, since oh, early oh, on. Oh, yeah, like two decades now, I guess. Mm. I guess yeah. So the, the family is still here, yes. It's still a and, part of the business. It always has been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ricky Doza is the symbol of pro culture in Japan mm-hmm. to this day. It starts with him. Yeah, yes. Oh, there, no, no, he wasn't technically the first pro wrestler, Japanese pro wrestler. There was like people like your Sorakichi Matsuda in 19, you know, like the end of the 19th century. And there's Taro Miyake or Mari Matsuda or uh, people like that in 1920s and 30s. But uh, post-war, Beginning of television, beginning of wrestling, beginning of television, beginning of wrestling was beginning of television thing in Japan. As a cultural icon, Ricky Dozen was the guy. Yes, he was the hero. He was the national hero, superhero. And books and books and books been written on him, and movies been made. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we still see his footage in all over the place. And in the next year, uh, twenty twenty three, will be sixtieth year. Uh, since his passing, so a lot of things we know that the books and movies and other things, picture book, all, all kind of things are coming out this coming year. Amazing. I mean, it's amazing. He was around for over a decade, Just, but it's still it's yeah, not ten that years. Long. Ten years in sumo wrestling and twelve years in professional wrestling, but um, it seemed a lot longer. I mean, the impact feels uh, like it would be longer, right? Yeah, yeah. So. And everybody who was there remembers like the post-war modern Japan period that the Ricky Dozan was your television star, the most famous person. And people would just line up on the street to see him on these very tiny television screens <laughs> if they didn't yeah, have them at their because- house. TV set was really expensive in the early 50s, and it was like a post-war you know, technology that you can watch movie in, at home. What's television, man, right? Mm. And, uh, people start buying TV set so you can watch Ricky Dozen. Really? It's very interesting. It's very important, and I think it, it helps if you're a fan of Japanese wrestling already. I think he's a, if you don't understand that piece of the puzzle, I think it will help illuminate everything yeah and then also Ricky Dozan was the one who discovered Antonio young Antonio Inoki and giant Baba. yeah of course two I mean kings. The, it's two the, kings after Ricky Dozan right he's the the first king yeah 
and there are two two kings after that. Mm -hmm. and, and the story continues. And Antonio Inoki passing this year was really you know big thing too. So. Huge. Yeah. So I think I think we did a, a pretty decent it? job hitting everything. Yeah, um, but I think so. I think it's, it's impossible to cover everything because there's so much, you know. But I wanted to correct some of the you know like a stabbing incident in a myth go around with it. You know that that was a big one. As more podcasts and shows come mm -hmm. out, there are people that tend to spin the truth or misrepresent or, or, or intentionally, unintentionally. Who cares? It's just not right. And it's not it's incorrect so thank you for me for setting the record straight yeah i'm still studying yuki dozen it yeah. seems like there's a lot to learn every day so yeah there are more there are more to it and all these books are like 50 years old that uh, i just discovering you know, from old bookstore and what was written at the time you know and uh it's really interesting to read old books you know let's go it's another pieces of puzzle that uh, we can put together now you know? mm. yeah well, if we have questions or anybody out there has a comments or wants to ask you something, how can we reach you online? On Twitter, on Twitter, at Fumihiko Dayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, Fumihiko Dayo on Twitter, or Fumisaito on Facebook. Please message me first, Ofrendia. And on Twitter, I'm at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R. That's Ricky Dozan Parts 1 and 2. And that's it for now. I think this will be our final uh, episode of the year. And next week we'll send you an archived special bonus episode, but we'll come back with a new episode in January in 2023. So thanks everyone for joining us this year and we'll see you next time. So until next year, Fumi, take us away. So long from Tokyo. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.